from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, we're not coming from the uh, studios of WPSU today. Rather, we're at the uh, McCourtney headquarters in Pond Lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds more impressive than it is. But here we are. Best way to uh, to interview our guest, who uh, I will now introduce. Um, we're talking to uh, James Miller today. Uh, he's a professor at uh, New School in New York, and uh, he just wrote a book, really interesting book, called uh, Can Democracy Work? A Short History of a Radical Idea from Ancient Athens to Our World. And it's just a series of kind of vign- historical vignettes about uh, uh, what democracy meant in uh, ancient Athens, what it meant in the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, and then how it's kind of evolved um, through America. And, you know, he's really kind of chasing this idea of what is democracy and and what does it mean and uh, how do we actually kind of make it work? Yeah, really uh, erudite and interesting look at how democracy differs uh, over time mm-hmm. and uh, across space. Right, and, and, and really just a, an impressive uh, uh, breadth of knowledge. I mean, you know, we know this stuff... Um, and, and I think both of us were, were really educated by, by what's in this book. And so um, it's, and it's very interesting because, you know, he comes at this as someone from, uh, with a kind of radical background who's just stepping back and looking at uh, the, you know, kind of, well, wait a minute, what do we mean when we say democracy? What do we mean when we say, uh, you know, popular sovereignty, people power. And, and what do we mean when we refer to liberal democracy? Right, exactly. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, you know, with its emphasis on, on rights and mm-hmm, protections mm-hmm, of minorities mm-hmm. as opposed to democracy, which is about people power. Right, right. And, and he's emphasizing that people power mm-hmm, aspect of democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so you can have, you know, in ways that kind of reflect back on, you know, people we've talked with, uh, like how democracies die, you can have very democratic... Uh, you know, procedure that leads to very undemocratic or at least, you know, illiberal outcomes. Well, and, that's what we're seeing with some of the populist movements across right, the globe right, right now. Right, right, Yeah, and it's, and it's, it is... Regimes that are elected democratically, but then uh, immediately govern in very illiberal sorts of ways and, 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 uh, change rules and policies in a way that downplays liberalism. Right. And and so he um, makes these same kind of um, connections back to, you know, the, the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, especially where they started with this, um, you know, extreme hopes for um, and passion around the idea of, you know, the, the, the rights of man, you know, in, in France and you know, kind of stepping up to a new standing in the world for the individual and for uh, the right of being able to have your say. Certainly the American example, I think, is one where people have come to have a wider view of what democracy means and and, uh, much more... uh much more ambitious expectations about who will be involved in a democracy. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there, there is much that's undemocratic about the American Constitution. Um, but the fact is that over time, the American, uh, American politics have become more democratic. The franchise has been expanded to more and more groups. And, you know, looking at it, you know, it's not an incredibly long book, looking at it over, over 200, 
2,500 years, you, you really get a sense of just how um, contentious and how um, complicated this, this idea is. And, and I think um, that's a good segue as any to bring in Jenna and, and Jim and, see, and, and hear what they have to say. Okay. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with James Miller. James, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So your book, Can Democracy Work? Uh, it's kind of a, a quick fire history lesson of the past 2,500 years or so of the, the democratic experiment, as it were. Um, but I actually want to start our conversation with something that you say at the end of the book, on the, the very last page, in fact. Um, you talk about the ideal of democracy survives, um, even as it appears that the, the practice of democracy may be waning. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about um, what that ideal is and where it comes from. Talking about democracy in um, 2019 is complicated because uh, it has evolved in so many different directions and different people in different contexts uh, have defined it in different ways and uh, often People disagree vehemently about what is a kosher definition of democracy. So one of the reasons I wrote my book was to um, answer uh, the riddle of how could a form of government, which was disparaged for most of human history, have emerged uh, in the late 18th, 19th, and then 20th century to become the prevailing preferred form of regime, at least uh, superficially. Uh, so my book is uh, built around um, narrative accounts of five different answers to the question, uh, what is democracy? But as I've gone around the country this fall, since the book was published and spoken about democracy, I've come to the conclusion that actually you can um, reduce uh, all of these different definitions to variations on um, a core sort of spine of the category that goes all the way back to uh, the first uh, appearance of the term in um, ancient Athens. And uh, the term itself in Greek is a conjunction of two words, demos and kratos. Demos is the Greek word for people. Uh, kratos is a more interesting term in the archaic Greek, as I've come to understand, I don't talk about this in the book, but um, it came up when I was uh, uh, in a, on a panel at Yale with a specialist uh, in classical studies. Kratos means uh, power, broadly understood, but it also has a strong connotation of force, of might. It's not just cuddly, abstract power. It really connotes people who have weapons in their hands and you have to respond to them. So a literal translation of uh, the word democracy into English would be people power. And so I think that the backbone of democracy and the key tension in it is that uh, in practice, going back to ancient Athens, it's implied the direct power of a people. Uh, but in application in modern societies, uh, the power of the people has always been uh, um, sharply attenuated and papered over. So you have a, a conflict between an ideal 
and what it would mean if you were to take it literally and uh, the kind of uh, um, sad way it's put into practice in most existing regimes. Sure. And it, it, it strikes me that kind of the, the theme of the book is, is looking at a kind of our, our struggles to find what the right balance between those things those those two forces that you describe are at least to, to the extent that we we even can. I mean, you also say that it's. I think you're you're, you're quoting someone else here when you describe it as a cruel game without yeah. an end, right? So, um, where you know, I think as you as you show in your kind of historical examples, it's been this kind of you know back and forth and and, and ebb and flow um, between those two things. But what what can what can history tell us about? Um, trying to to marry this this ideal of democracy versus what what it, it ends up being in in practice well i first of all i think it's very um um misleading to try to uh draw direct lessons from history um because so much in politics is situational it depends on the context it depends on the culture um, uh, it depends on um, the level of development of a people or a group that's trying to become self-governing. In the modern period, the democracy as an idea and as an ideology and an ideal, it's inherently unstable because there's a, a core um, ambiguity about um, to what extent uh, it can be um, um, realized in practice. Uh, and there's a further ambiguity in that it's proven to be a very powerful legitimating mechanism as an ideology. And you end up with regimes that talk about democracy, but don't for a nanosecond really mean it. And um, the cases of uh, communist countries like North Korea and China are, to most Americans, self-evident. But the United States, to me, is a version of this. Uh, the United States um, has a constitution that was designed to uh, thwart democracy. Um, the founders intended to do that. And to this day, uh, the constitution, in effect, does do that uh, by giving rural voters disproportionate power, the Senate, the Electoral College. There are many undemocratic features of the American constitution. On the other hand, the one thing that everybody focuses on in America who wants to try to promote democracy is the right to vote. And yet, I don't think there's been a single time in American history when the right to vote, the franchise, has been universally exercised in this country because uh, there is a constant struggle to suppress votes, to uh, take away vote, voting rights from various groups for various reasons, whether it's literacy tests or racial discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the story of democracy in the modern world is, um, is a kind of... Um, trick-or-treat tale, I'm afraid. What most people forget is that foreigners were excluded. And Athens had a lot of foreigners. It was a huge commercial city, one of the biggest in the ancient world. And it would be like being in New York City and saying that anybody who is uh, 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 has, uh, was not born in New York City to two New York City um, uh, parents couldn't have any role in the politics of the city uh, because that was the rule in Athens. You had to have two native-born parents. It couldn't just be your mother or father. It had to be both. 
so this was a very uh, rigorous and rigidly enforced exclusionary rule of citizenship. It had the great material benefit that it allowed the Athenian city-state to, in effect, redistribute wealth and um, uh, support poor people, in part by paying them to participate in the running of the city's uh, uh, justice system and its uh, political administration. Now, this is your, your council of... Yeah, the, the council of council 500, 500 right? people were paid to uh, for jury duty, just as nominally they are in the United States today. But that uh, I, I want to stress it because that model of exclusionary, uh, 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 a kind of an exclusionary welfare state has been reproduced today in countries like Hungary and Poland. And there's a tendency for people to say, oh, that's not democratic. And I think the, that's not right. Democracy from its inception as people power doesn't entail liberal protections. Those come later. The second case right. I look at is uh, the case that seems to me very clearly to be the inflection point where democracy reappears as a defensible form of government and the term begins to be used honorifically again. This happens in France after the storming of the Bastille in 1789, and the answer that the French uh, 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 give to the question, what is democracy, is a revolutionary assertion of popular sovereignty. Uh, they redefine democracy in terms of popular sovereignty. So we're talking about um, force and might and the exercise of popular might in a very direct way here. Uh, this uh, insurrection clears the way for uh, the creation of what's uh, known as the French Convention, in which the great um, uh, uh, philosopher and um, a mathematician and uh, a constitutionalist, the Marquis de Condorcet, uh, creates what is uh, the first world's first democratic constitution, which is an attempt to actually uh, figure out a way to create uh, direct uh, popular involvement in politics at the scale of a nation state. The French are, are working, as, as you said, uh, thousands of years after after Athens and your democracy had long been out of out of favor out of out of kind of the, the thought that it was a, a good system of government a good thing to pursue so what are what are they looking to or you know what are where are they kind of getting some of these these ideas that you know ended up in this 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 constitution that you know was never ultimately ratified but did end up you know, influencing people on, on down the line. The key intellectual influence is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who uh, grows out of a modern Republican tradition and uh, ends up backing into a kind of support for democracy, I think in part because he grew up in the city of Geneva, which had uh, the dimensions of a Greek polis and had a constitution in the 18th century that was uh, described as aristo-democratic. So it was already halfway to being um, uh, presented to citizens as democratic. And Rousseau uh, grew up uh, aware of uh, what was in fact in kind of slow burn civil war in the city that occasionally erupted into armed conflict over how democratic the city of Geneva's government should be. Uh, the principles of popular sovereignty as laid out in the social contract uh, stipulate that uh, you cannot represent uh, the will of uh, the people. 
uh, so it's an explicit attack on uh, representative government, uh, particularly the English Constitution. Uh, so, you know, that is uh, uh, the proximate source of inspiration for what the uh, revolutionaries in Condorcet were trying to accomplish in France. Uh, it, Rousseau also is interesting because he really is AWOL in the American Revolution. Uh, 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 the Americans read Montesquieu and the Scottish Enlightenment and Locke and so on and so forth. But one of the reasons why democracy is AWOL during the founding is because uh, of the lack of this key intellectual influence that becomes salient in the French Revolution. Uh, the, Amer the French Revolution, by the way, also becomes a tremendous influence on the United States in the 1790s. And again, this is a story that isn't usually told. But uh, uh, people like Thomas Jefferson... Uh, who happened to be in Paris and watched as the uh, Bastille was stormed and wrote back a report about what he saw. Uh, people like Jefferson were very enthused by the French Revolution. And uh, the people in Jefferson's faction within the federal government um, uh, were inspired by the rise of popular clubs and debating societies in France uh, in the 1790s. And uh, such uh, popular societies began to sprout up in the United States in which uh, ordinary people would gather to discuss constitutional principles uh, and in which uh, the newspapers that were controlled by the Jeffersonians were actually printing verbatim the entire speeches of Robespierre as soon as they could be uh, uh, brought up, uh, up by boat and translated and put into English. So uh, there is an American version of democracy that does appear in the course of the 19th century, and it, 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 it develops on a different path than democracy in Europe. And yet, we in the United States think we invented democracy. So the, one of the more weird facets of the story of modern democracy is America preening itself on being the birthplace of modern democracy, which is false, and uh, being a place where we're the great protector of democracy, uh, which we've used repeatedly in the 20th and 21st century as a, a rationale for imposing by gunfire democratic ideals on foreign countries. Uh, so the American answer to the question, what is democracy, I think is a commercial republic of free individuals. It's a libertarian market society version of democracy that's quite distinct from the social democratic version that emerges in Europe uh, that stresses political and social equality. Sure. There, there have also kind of been kind of experiments in more direct democracy along the way in America. I think um, we were all uh, surprised to read about um, the, the People's Party and, and the, the People's Constitution in Rhode Island. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what, what that looked like? At the time of the revolution, after the Declaration of Independence, most of the states, um, uh, the, the colonies, uh, drafted their own constitutions. But during this whole ferment, Rhode Island basically just ratified its colonial charter and kept it in place, which meant that in the 1830s, it was completely out of step with what was going on in other uh, parts of the United States, which led uh, um, uh, one of uh, uh, the uh, uh, scion of a political legacy family in Rhode Island to say, wait a minute, we need to create a 
broader franchise here in Rhode Island. And um, he marshaled support. He petitioned uh, the uh, legislature of Rhode Island, which ignored him. And in frustration said, "Okay, I'm going to declare a convention and we're going to draft a new constitution, which, of course, by the rules of the state legislature in Rhode Island was illegal. Uh, But um, he went ahead and did this. Uh, there, uh, a, a huge number of uh, citizens of Rhode Island uh, participated in this convention. They then participated in a subsequent election that was organized illegally. Uh, and uh, it led uh, in an almost farcical manner to uh, 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 the takeover of uh, an attempt to take over the state uh, National Guard uh, armory. Uh, uh, by hauling cannons out and attacking it, and uh, because the people who were involved uh, actually had very few martial skills, it ends up um, a short of a civil war. Uh, but it came to the brink of a civil war. And again, in the United States, it's odd to think that this would happen. But of course, this is before uh, actually the big civil war over uh, slavery. And uh, part of what's uh, sobering about what happened in Rhode Island is when they held an absolutely as democratic as possible vote, uh, uh, it turned out the, you know, the majority of people in Rhode Island did not want to extend the franchise to black people. Uh, and so there's always this kind of contradiction. If you give real power to ordinary people, you don't necessarily know who they're going to include or exclude. Uh, and uh, so the Rhode Island uh, affair was, uh, uh, when I discovered it, I was uh, uh, completely shocked because it, it just, um, it, it seemed so uh, un-American. Right. And it go, going from that notion of kind of knowing who people will exclude or, or won't exclude or, you know, kind of measuring what people think, you also talk about the rise of of Gallup in the the 30s and you know public opinion polls and kind of as as a I'm utilizing those those methods as as a way to kind of help gauge what people are are, are thinking and um you know get what so um how does this this impact uh, democracy being able to in a, in a way that hadn't really been possible technically or otherwise to know how broad swaths of of the the population felt uh, the correct answer to the question, what is democracy in the 20th century, probably is a hall of mirrors. But the, the conception that allows that to happen is the notion that democracy is ruled by public opinion. And this is proposed as a definition of modern democracy by Woodrow Wilson in uh, um, writings before he became president of the United States. I think to many of us, it's second nature by now. Um, what Wilson didn't foresee, uh, even though he was a, a very early uh, a PhD in political science, which was just emergent field in scholarship, uh, is that um, around the time of the First uh, World War, the Great War, uh, there had been enough advances in statistics, um, and uh, Condorcet, by the way, was a great pioneer of political arithmetic, as he called it. There had been enough advances in statistics that um, um, uh, people had figured out that if you did random samples of individuals, 
um, you could um, get a gauge, a broad gauge, um, uh, uh, through probability sampling of uh, what larger groups of people were thinking. And that these statistical samples would be more accurate than if you sent in, if you just asked people um, uh, who, all of whom read a magazine or uh, uh, to, to, to cast votes for something because of the randomness of the selection. Uh, this uh, nascent science of the monitoring of public opinion uh, takes root in the United States, first of all, in um, commercial applications uh, through market research, but very quickly spreads to uh, politics and uh, emerges as uh, a, a kind of uh, set of practices in the 20s and uh, in the into the 1930s, and finally in the 1936 presidential campaign, for the first time, uh, you have uh, newspapers and magazines printing uh, public opinion polls on uh, who supports the different presidential candidates for the first time in history. The hope of people like George Gallup, who, uh, whose Gallup poll was one of the most famous of these early polls and is still around, uh, was that this would become a kind of snapshot of what the people wanted and that uh, there would have been created a device that in a way would, um, if, you, if you thought the public opinion polling was totally accurate, it could even bypass elections. It was like you could just have the pulse of the ordinary people without them having to do anything. Certainly, they wouldn't have to gather in a town square and pick up arms and have an insurrection. It was just almost the opposite of that. The problem with that idealized vision um, is there's been a recurrence, I would say, of these utopian hopes for monitoring what people want that you can track from Gallup all the way up to the early Internet utopians who thought the Internet would make possible a, a direct transcription of individual desires that you could aggregate and make a more democratic uh, monitoring device, is that um, public opinion polling it's a two-way street. Uh, you can find out what people think they want, and then you can try to manipulate it. And you can manipulate it in part by the questions you ask. And this, this also ties to something, if you, this is from, from Walter Lippmann, that people don't really have the time to devote to these issues anyway. They don't really understand what's happening in their democracy, why it's happening, or, or what, what should be happening. So this seems like an, an easy kind of way, way around it. But yes, as you've said, maybe not, not always quite so easy. There are um, two different types of problems facing modern democracy. One is an institutional problem of scale versus uh, participation, which Robert Michels and the Iron Law, Law of Oligarchy identified as a real problem. As you scale up institutions, um, ordinary people tend to have smaller and smaller uh, uh, potential for having a voice in those institutions. But the other limitation is psychological, is that human beings actually can only process so much information. And in a, a complicated modern um, society, an awful lot of uh, the key information relevant to politics is invisible to ordinary citizens and has to be mediated through media if they have access to it at all, given uh, the rise of uh, considerable areas of secrecy uh, in the modern administrative state. So uh, these are major challenges uh, to um, democratic aspirations. So what what's 
what's the the answer or have you did you kind of glean anything about how to how to move forward or what what a not a perfect but a more perfect form of, of, of democracy can look like based on you know all of these these examples and everything you've you've called from history so there's one question is is democracy a universal ideal solution to all in all political administrative domains? Um, really? Shouldn't we rethink that? Uh, because what's happened is I think that under the ideology of democracy, there has evolved a number of hierarchical um, uh, uh, institutions that are in fact governed by uh, meritocracy and rules of expertise. The other response I would say is that the vitality of democracy in a modern setting, in effect, depends on uh, the uh, uh, continued eruption into the public sphere of the voices of ordinary citizens. And that this um, eruption of voices will often be uh, unruly and uh, may even create uh, chaos. Uh, uh, that's the nature of democratic revolts. And in this context, I would say the following. I mean, on one level, you could look at the last two years in the United States and say, oh, this is terrible. I mean, there's been a great democratic recession and da, 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 da. Um, I don't buy it. Uh, I think that uh, I don't buy the idea there's been a great democratic recession globally. Most of the people who present those metrics conflate liberalism and democracy. There's been a popular uh, revulsion against liberal norms, standards, and guardrails. That's something different. Uh, and in response to that uh, popular uprising in response to liberal norms uh, and institutions and guardrails. There has been an incredible mobilization. Uh, it's a struggle that's in process. It's not clear that the forces that back uh, liberal guardrails and institutional protections are going to win. Uh, that's the nature of politics. It's a struggle. And uh, that means that I have no sympathy for people who keep denouncing what they call populism, which to me just means it's people power that they don't like. It's, uh, it, it's a group of people who are advocating policies they disagree with. Uh, the democratic answer to that is you, get, you should marshal your own people power. And um, that's what's going on in the United States right now, in my view. It's, it, it's a tremendous marshalling of political energies. Uh, the likes of which I haven't seen since the 1960s. Well, Jim, there's a lot to chew on in this this book, but um, I, I know I certainly uh, learned learned a lot. Um, you know, parts of of history that I think we kind of gloss over in our you know our, our own education. Well, so um, a lot to think about, and and I think you do you do a great job of of connecting those themes um, as you've done here during this this conversation. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, maybe our paths will cross some other place in some other way. It's been enjoyable. Well, there's a lot to chew on yeah. there, Chris. I, I, one thing that I was really intrigued by is the uh, distinction he, uh, Jim, draws there between uh, what he calls the commercial republic mm -hmm. of the United States and the more democratic socialist uh or social democratic, social democratic yeah. uh, democracies of, of, of Europe. Europe, and and you know he's making a very important point there that the American democracy is a, is a different case. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and there, and this is something that you hear. Uh, especially on the right, people referring to, you know, the American um, 
experiment, and they'll say, or "Well, American we're exceptionalism." Yeah, is that yeah. what you're getting to? Well, the idea that um, because that the American not, exceptionalism argument is, uh, I mean, as I've always understood it, is is one that because we don't come. Because the American democracy did not evolve from an aristocracy, mm-hmm. uh, that we have a, a, a very different sort of uh, democratic tradition. So the I, the argument that that people on the right frequently make is that you know this is not a democracy; this is a republic, and you know in some ways. Um, Jim's book reflects that, right? That the American, you know, his idea of the commercial republic, I don't remember which founder said that, but it was one of the founders. And, And the idea is that, you know, freedom has as much to do with, you know, your individual right to make a buck as it does, or and to believe what you want, as it does to have some kind of power. However, I think you can overstate that. And, um... You can also, you know, first of all, I mean, as you said, you have to understand the the democratic dimensions of this document in the context of the times. And then you also have to see it as an evolving, uh, uh, you know, conversation through history with respect to what do we mean by popular sovereignty. You're right. Well, and I also I read the Federalist Papers as an effort to come to grips with how do you form a democracy in a country that's going to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's already very large. And I that's mean, already very, very three large. Three million people. And, and putting aside all of the non-democratic compromises that they, that they made, you know, there is they, – they do argue out to a certain extent with the anti-federalists, the idea of whether or not uh, democracy needs to be grounded in uh, smaller locales mm-hmm. uh, where people can become more involved in decision-making. I mean that tradition was very much in the United States. Those are the t- New England town halls. They still do that mm-hmm. to some extent where people come out and they talk about the actual issues, they vote on the budget, they do this for their schools, they do it for their town. Uh, so that was there. But the, but the, uh, you know, the Federalists, I think, were, were trying to work out, but, but how does this work where you have a whole multitude of interests mm-hmm. and where you're, you're actually going to have even more interest coming in as the, country, as the country grows? And they come up with a somewhat elite Led, yes. Uh, sort of Republican, Republican democracy. I don't think it's fair not to say that it's a democracy, but it's a republic. I agree with that. It's a particular type of right. democracy. It, it, that, so it's a subset, right? And and I to make some kind of sharp distinction, you're either one or the other. I think is just you know wrong. I also think that ha- as history has progressed, the distinction has gotten even more diminished. The third thing I would want to say is that you know. I'm really kind of glad there's a Bill of Rights <laughs> and that there is this liberal tradition within. I'm not kind of glad. I'm extremely glad that, that this liberal, um, uh, you know, foundation um, constrains democracy, right? Because without it, um, it you know, there are uh, things that, that have happened in American history and that could co- happen at any moment that um, would create outcomes that none of us would want. Right. Right. Well, the sense that we're seeing in many democracies around the world that maybe the uh, the history of democracies really moves towards authoritarianism. Mm, yeah. Yeah. R- rather than towards, as maybe Martin Luther King might have said, towards justice. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, I was struck too by something he that uh, something Jim said about how uh, so much having to do with democracy historically is contextual, and that you can't really generalize about, and I. I I guess you can't really generalize about where democracies are going to succeed and when democracy is mm-hmm. going to succeed. Uh, it, it, did, did you catch that as a yeah. representation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, and I actually kind of struck me as kind of 
an odd thing to say well, because the whole book is about looking at examples to kind of find out what's going on in, in democracies. And yeah, they're all idiosyncratic, but still there's... Well, I'm also struck by books that we read. And actually, uh, he, he referenced one quickly at the end, how democracies die and, and a lot of work that goes on uh, in studies of democratization and political science sometimes refer to it as democratic consolidation. Uh, but let's go to how democracies die, which is something we talked about, which really actually tries to lay out fairly systematically mm-hmm. uh, how it is that a democracy might die. Mm-hmm. And other work uh, tries to lay out rather systematically the conditions that are necessary for a democracy to succeed. Uh, you know, if a country has an educated middle class, it's more likely to be able to, a democracy is more likely to take root and, and grow. Uh, uh, countries that have uh, greater extensions of uh, rights to uh, women uh, are, are more likely perhaps for a democracy to, to grow. Well, I think, that's, I think that's true. I think his argument with, um, with kind of the framing of a book with the title How Democracies Die, his argument is, you know, Putin has 80% approval rating in, in, in Russia and or, Orban in, in Hungary is, was just reelected, as was Erdogan in Turkey. So the argument isn't that... Uh, these are undemocratic, is that they're unliberal, and so it's just a, it's a, a, the wrong way to frame it. Well, I think they're undemocratic, too, and, and, and undemocratic because, you know, I, I picked up that, I, I know that he's reluctant to reduce democracy to voting, mm-hmm. and, and I, I think that's really appropriate. Mm-hmm. But there also, it is possible to compare elections across countries in time and say that some are more democratic than others. Yes. uh, Elections that have real opposition, Mm -hmm. uh, elections that allow a free press, uh, elections that uh, where assembly is allowed, uh, elections... uh, elections that don't restrict suffrage to only certain parts of the population. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which some elections are more democratic than others. Elections where a leader who squashes the opposition receives 80% of the vote, it's not a democratic election. Yeah, and so and so, what I'm hearing from you is something that I think is a really uh, salient and, and um, important point. The, the, idea, the idea is that the, the rights and freedoms that we understand as liberal are part and parcel of your understanding of popular sovereignty, right? So in other words, if you're going to give people the vote and people are going to um, freely express their opinion, then you need a free press. You need the ability of, you know, you need an opposition. You need election that allows people to, to choose freely. And so um, you right. can't this is really, a very, right, you yeah, can't it's a, really have a democracy without this. It's a very procedural view of democracy. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to minimize uh, the point that he's making, too, that the, that the power of people comes through in ways other than elections as well. And I mean, we've seen a lot of that in the United States uh, mm-hmm. since the election of Donald Trump with the, as he mentioned, uh, through the uh, the women's marches and through other kinds of protests. I, I think about what happened at the airports when the travel ban went in. Uh, but, you know, even there, uh, you heard from many people, well, if this has turned into electoral power, then it really does make a difference. But if it doesn't, it's harder to see where it does. Well, I think that's kind of true, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, that is the elections are and, and have been from the time of the founding understood to be the means by which, the primary means by which, uh, the, the, the people 
uh, uh, exercise their sovereignty. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as we've talked about before, we seem to be at a moment, and, and Jim noted this, where people are really interested in democracy. They're talking about democracy. They're reading about it. And this is a terrific uh, addition to anyone's library about uh, how to understand uh, American democracy and worldwide democracy. Right. And, and I, you know, the themes that, that are in this book are ones that we have uh, reflected on before and will continue to because they're just central. So, um, thanks to Jenna and to Jim, and uh, uh, thank you all for listening. Um, my name's Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. And this is Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.